This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Occasionally on the show, we talk about theology. This summer, we've talked about liberation theology, and we've talked about faith among poor Philadelphia residents. And in the past, we've talked about such things as religious education in prisons. But today's show is perhaps breaking new ground in our occasional discussions of faith, because today on Fordham Conversations, we are talking about the occult. But because we didn't feel like just talking about the occult was weird enough, today on Fordham Conversations, we are talking about the occult in Russia. A little later on the show, we'll talk about how the spiritual beliefs of early and mid-20th century Soviets contributed to the development of Sputnik and the Russian space program. Really. And we'll visit with a teenage psychic who is plying his trade in Maine, right here in the U.S. But first, Bernice Glatzer-Rosenthal is a professor of history at Fordham, and she has been writing about the occult in Russia for decades. Her latest work makes comparisons between two historical moments when the occult was very big, in Russia just around the time of the revolution, and in the U.S. in the 1960s and 70s. I asked Glatzer Rosenthal to come into our studios and chat with me about this spooky topic, and she was kind enough to do so. Bernice Glatzer Rosenthal, welcome. Thank you. Let's just start very basically. You talk about occultism in your work. What are you specifically talking about when you talk about occultism? I'm talking about many things. It's a very wide spectrum, and people disagree on exactly what's occult and what's not. But basically... It's things like astrology, palm reading, numerology, Kabbalah, which has gotten a big play lately with Madonna, and then systems like theosophy, spiritualism, and anthroposophy, which I could explain them if you want. I see I'm not ringing a bell because you're not into this stuff. Yeah, what? there were a couple there that weren't that familiar. Could you give me yeah. a nutshell description? Okay, theosophy, you might have heard of the name of Helena Blavatsky. She was a Russian, actually Ukrainian. And she developed what she called a world religion. It combined aspects of Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity into a new system, which she claimed, I emphasize claimed, was delivered to her by Mahatmas living in the Himalayas. And this became a worldwide movement. She left Russia and she went to live in New York. And then she and her partner moved to India. And theosophy became extremely important at the turn of the 20th century, excuse me, the turn of the 19th century. In other words, late 19th, early 20th century. And I came across it because I study Russian history, and many of the intellectuals I study were very interested in it. But it also became important among artists all over Europe and in the United States. And some of the current New Age stuff recycles aspects of theosophy. But, of course, if you don't know theosophy, you won't pick up what's recycled. Now, spiritualism, that precedes theosophy. This is a doctrine born in the United States, in New York State in particular, by two sisters, the Fox sisters, who made it up. It was a hoax. They later admitted they made it up. But they claimed that they could contact departed spirits. And this became very popular because people want to speak to the dead. I heard a lecture on spiritualism once, and the lecturer said, how many of you would want to speak to departed loved ones? How many of you have something you'd want to say to them? And 
tears came into my eyes because I would love to speak to my departed mother. And so these mediums, these mediums were women who supposedly were gifted to be able to speak to the dead or to enable you to speak to the dead. So they had these seances, they would sit in darkened rooms, and somehow or other, people were satisfied. I've heard about spiritualism before, which was not true of a lot of these things. And I remember that it was a big craze in America for a while. Oh, yeah. It kind of comes and goes. And it comes after periods of war, like after the Civil War, after World War I, because people want to speak to their departed sons. Now, you deal with both Russia and the United States, and you say that the kinds of occultism that arose in both societies and at different times were really similar, which I thought was kind of amazing because yeah. they're such different cultures, exactly. not only separated by time, but also just by, well, by culture. Tell me more about that. Okay, well, I can, I'll start by saying how I got interested in it. I was at Berkeley in the 60s. Now, I was raised in a very what I would call loosely scientific way. I went to Bronx High School of Science. I had never heard of the occult. And at Berkeley, I came across, through friends of mine, things like astrology, and I became very interested. And the man I was working on for my dissertation, his name was Dmitry Merishkovsky. He was very similar in many respects to the hippies around Berkeley. And this intrigued me. And so in the back of my mind, I said, someday... When I'm finished with all my other research, I'm going to do a book comparing the two because they are so similar. And what keeps them together, in my opinion, this is my interpretation, is in both cases, the general ideals of a society, of the society, were losing their impact. Now, the ideals were different, and the reasons why they lost their impact were different. But people no longer had faith in what I would call the received wisdom. Now, this could be, depending on who we're talking about, what Merishkovsky, this guy I did my dissertation on, called historic Christianity, by which he meant the Christianity taught in the churches. In Berkeley in the 60s, and then throughout the United States, many people had lost faith in what we call the American dream. And again, there are different reasons. But the result was similar. Interest in the occult, similar political doctrines, belief in the apocalypse, the imminent apocalypse, and so on. Like, I remember at Berkeley distinctly, the hippies believed that there'd be an earthquake and California would fall into the sea. And there are all kinds of apocalyptic sentiments percolating through both societies. So when you get occultism as a mass phenomenon, because there are always some people who believe it at any time, this is a symptom, in my interpretation, that people have lost faith in their previous beliefs or... They want to supplement them in one way or another. Can you tell me what was going on? This may seem kind of obvious, but um, in Russia at the time when this became popular and then also in the 60s in the United States? Okay, well, to begin with in Russia. For one thing, there was an industrialization drive in the 1890s. Before that, it was a very agrarian society. The drive was pushed by the government, and it caused all kinds of dislocations. And industrialism comes along with new values including upward mobility, which was not a value in Russia before that, including a kind of this-worldly orientation, enjoy life, as distinct from the values taught by the Orthodox Church in Russia, which were self-sacrifice and asceticism. And the Russian revolutionary movement 
had similar values. They also preached self-sacrifice, not for God, but for the people, and not exactly asceticism, because they were not celibate, but a Spartan lifestyle, where you denied yourself pleasure until the revolution, when everybody could have everything. So that's one of the big changes. And the people that I study don't like these changes. And so they become interested in the occult. Another reason was a kind of political dissatisfaction. Russia, until 1905, was the only country in Europe, or I should modify that, the only major power in Europe that didn't have a constitution or a parliament. So there are many people pushing for that. And then what happens in Russia in 1905, there's a revolution. And before that, there were two streams of what I would call dissidents. There were the occult type, they were symbolists, and they're just interested in art. And they believe that art is a path to higher truths. And so they're very naturally drawn to the occult. The other group are socialists, including Marxists, who are not interested in art. They're interested in revolution and politics and economics. But during the year of the revolution, or I should say years, because the revolution lasted till 1907, there's a kind of interaction between the two groups. So the symbolists, the artistic types, they become interested in politics, and they develop all kinds of utopian ideas. And some Marxists, by no means all, become interested in the occult. For example, there are two Marxists, and again, most people probably have not heard of them, Lunacharsky and Gorky. And they want to make Marxism a religion. And they're very interested in theosophy. Because theosophy, one of its tenets, is that the individual is a microcosm of the macrocosm, which is the cosmos or the universe. So they think this can somehow be adapted to socialism. Also, as Marxists, they oppose egoism, individualism. Theosophy opposes that too. So that's what's happening in Russia. Now, in the United States... Again, there were basically the hippies who dropped out of society, and many of them came from well-to-do families. So they're not interested in material things. They're not worried about money. The political types, especially the new left, in the 60s, mainly because of the anti-war movement, the two streams tended to merge. The hippies became politicized because of the war. The new left becomes interested in the occult as well. Not all, but some. And because of the interaction of the two movements, the occult becomes, enters the mainstream of American society through young people. The anti-war movement, of course, died down after the Vietnam War. But many of the ideas of the 60s remained, and they became part of American society. So that, again, not so much formal theosophy, but many of its ideas enter into what later becomes the New Age movement. So what qualities do sort of all occult beliefs have that make them occult as opposed to something else? Uh, they are non-rational. So what distinguishes occultism from, say, Christianity or Judaism or Hinduism? That's a very good question, because you can say religions are non-rational, too. I know Judaism better than Christianity, because I'm Jewish. There's a rational tradition. And Judaism stresses law. Jewish discussions like the Talmud, they're disputes about law, but they're using reason. And you'll have Rabbi X says this, Rabbi Y says that. You don't find that in the occult. 
obviously, with any religion, you believe, and that's not rational. Is a big part of the reason that occultism would be different because it tends to be sort of in opposition to a more dominant belief system? If it were to become the more dominant belief system, would it cease to be occultism? Uh, probably. Because occult literally means that which is hidden. So it has a countercultural aspect. What What is the appeal of occultism? And does it vary by, you know, where you're talking about or what you're saying? Or is it is it pretty similar in most cases? I think in many cases, occultism provides a kind of certainty, which is particularly attractive when the society is changing rapidly. So, for example, if you believe in astrology, you cast your chart or you have someone cast your chart, and this will tell you what's going to happen to you. It may or may not work, but if you believe it, it can be empowering because there is such a thing as positive thinking. So if I believe, for example, that um, I'm going to be successful in my field, my horoscope says so, I might work very hard to make it come true. Well, Bernice Glatzer-Rosenthal, thank you so much. Thank you. It was fun. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Fordham historian Asif Siddiqui also studies Russia, but his focus is on outer rather than inner space. Among other publications, Siddiqui is the author of the books Sputnik and the Soviet Space Challenge and the Soviet Space Race with Apollo. Both of those books are out from the University Press of Florida. His latest work, though, has to do with the roots, including the spiritual roots, of the Soviet space program. We know that the Soviets got to space before we did, in 1957, ironically on the same October night that Leave it to Beaver premiered on U.S. television. But until recently, we didn't know much about what they were thinking about while they were, in essence, inventing space travel. I asked Siddiqui to tell me about the Russian interest in space. Russians were obsessed about the cosmos. They were obsessed with space flight, especially in the 1920s. There was a complete explosion of just interest in space flight in the 20s. They were really interested in going to the moon, going to Mars. And of course, this is a time when Russia can't even produce a car, basically. So this was a really odd period. But it's got some interesting, a lot of things came out of it. These university students, they produced the world's first exhibition on spaceflight in 1927. They formed the world's first society for spaceflight in 1924. Artists painted about spaceflight. Movies were made about spaceflight in the 20s and the 30s. An enormous amount of novels, books, articles written about space in the 20s and the 30s, much more so than anywhere else in the world. Uh, It sort of dies away after a while, but it really sets the stage for a kind of a long foundation of Russian culture just being absorbed in spaceflight. So. Why do you think that? Why do I think? Well, right after the revolution, and you must remember the revolution in 1917, the Russian Communist Revolution, to us um, it may seem kind of, we know what came after 70 years of communism and repression and totalitarianism, but at the time it was a time of hope for many Russians. And so when you have a time of extreme hope, There's also an explosion of utopian dreaming. People start to dream of what's not possible. And there are always crackpots on the fringe who really dream beyond even what's acceptable to be dreamt. So I think in that sort of cultural milieu, you have people who are just coming up with the most crazy nutcase ideas. And at the time, spaceflight was a totally off-the-wall idea. 
But it was acceptable because, hey, we just had the revolution. Anything's possible, so why not spaceflight? Tell me about cosmonism and technological utopianism. Well, technological utopianism, which I'll start first, is really the idea of technology as a panacea for all social ills in, in the world. I mean, we still, I think, to some degree are, are steeped in technological utopianism. I mean, we live in a world where people will say, oh, uh, you know, the Internet has changed everything and anything's possible. I mean, that's technological utopianism, really, the, the belief that somehow technology has the answer to everything, or medical technology or what, whatever. And that is a very old idea. It's not a particularly new new notion. And I'm interested in the ways in which utopians seem to latch on to technology as a panacea. I mean, there are utopians of many stripes. There are you know utopians who want to go back to the country and build communes. But there are also utopians, and I think you'll see this in probably Silicon Valley, who think that their invention changed the world. I think space exploration is firmly of that mold. Uh, Russia really has a deep tradition of technological utopianism. And cosmism is an interesting idea, which is um, it's more of a mystical and occultish idea, which is also part of the roots of Russian interest in space travel. Cosmism is, a, is the idea that uh, nobody really dies. And when we die, our particles just go off into space and um, are, are still existing. And it is our goal to go into space and reanimate them and put them back together so that we can live again. And this is part of a philosophy that Tsiolkovsky, the very father of Russian space travel, had. This is one of the reasons he wanted to go to space. He didn't believe in death. He believed, and his, his motto was actually victory over death. It's kind of a, you know, I don't mean to denigrate it, but a, a, at the same time, it, it has a lot of nutty connotations to it. The darker side of cosmism is that Tsiolkovsky believed that we should get rid of all things that are defective. For example, if a human being is has something wrong with him or her, we should not try and reanimate them. It's sort of a eugenics view of, of life. So uh, cosmism has unfortunately made a big comeback in Russia these days, particularly in the way in which you have a very nationalist Russian sentiment, kind of a xenophobic sentiment arising in Russia these days. A lot of people latch on to cosmism as sort of the destiny of Russians in space is only for Russians. But cosmism has a long history, and I'm really simplifying a, a more complex idea, but the basic idea is the reanimation of all human humanity. Everybody is still living out in space, and it is our goal to reanimate them, put them back together, and make them living again. And this, there is a realistic link that can be drawn between this and the actuality of space travel? Uh, sure. In Russia, yes. Uh, Tsiolkovsky, the father of Russian space travel, his, a lot of his children died when they were young. Uh, he was deeply shaken by these events, and he refused to believe that they were dead. And this really influenced him, this kind of thinking. And it's not original. Other European philosophers have thought about the same thing. But in Russia, it really took hold. Of course, uh, through the, during the communist era, these kinds of ideas were taboo. They were still around circulating. But in, under communism, you had to really redirect your rationale for space travel to you know the future of socialist workers and things like that. But the undercurrent of a lot of it comes from mysticism and the occult, which Tsiolkovsky was very steeped in. Yeah. It did seem to me as I was reading about this that there was sort of this parallel thing going on, which was that people did not want to talk about God when they were talking about space because right. it was really taboo. But at the same time, when they talked about the technology, when they talked about conquering space, mm -hmm. they were really talking about it in this very religious way. Oh, absolutely. That's a very a good observation in the sense that technology itself became their religion. And uh, 
and this is also part of the whole the whole ethos of the Russian Revolution, which is progress and very futuristic. And Russians really adopted that. That and they they speak of technology and science, and they still do as some sort of it has a religious connotation to it. Um, especially uh, during the communist era, when really there was no organized religion per se, they really latched onto science and uh, or their version of uh, secularism as sort of the end and be all of everything. Yeah, very much so. Asif Siddiqui, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Asif Siddiqui is an assistant professor of history at Fordham. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. This morning at 7.30 on WFUV, it's Cityscape. On this week's show, it is all about dogs. I can't wait. Before that, though, one more look at the occult, this one a little closer to home in Maine. Nathan Dyer is just like any other American teenager, except that for a small fee, he'll tell you what your future holds. This look at Nathan's everyday life comes from Katie Mingle at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies. It's 7 p.m. and a backpack is lost in Nathan Dyer's house. Get out the pendulum thing and find the backpack. My pendulum? I thought it was out in the car. Nathan has been instructed by his mom, Renee, to find the backpack using his pendulum. A pendulum is a stone, whether it may be a quartz. I mean, they can be made out of any stone and they're sphere-shaped. He sits very still and lets the pendulum swing back and forth over the palm of his hand while asking it questions. Is it in the house? Is it in the living room? The pendulum is supposed to indicate yes or no by swinging in a particular direction. Only problem is, Nathan and his grandmother, who is also involved in the search, can't seem to remember which direction means yes and which is no. Well, back and forth is no. No, that's that way. You were looking at an angle. No is that way. Yes is this way. (laughs) This isn't the first time he's tried to find a lost item using a pendulum. He's been looking for his lost Nintendo Game Boy for about six months using the same method. But so far, it hasn't turned up. Meanwhile, his mother is straightening up the living room, which is littered with toys and clothes, a routine she goes through nightly. She finds the backpack without the help of the pendulum. Nathan Dyer is a psychic, but he's also a teenager, so he's still working out some kinks. Okay, you're going to pick another card? That was January. That's already passed. Today, Nathan is giving me a tarot card reading at his kitchen table. And I'm also hearing you've always been emotional, even since you were younger. Like, if someone said something mean to you, you t- you'd sort of take it personal. And if it's, I mean, I don't bl- I mean, I'm like that, too. I mean, he says from a pretty young age, he knew he had psychic powers. It started with dreams and strong, intuitive feelings about people. And then, according to family legend, other mysterious things started to happen. Nathan's mom, Renee. So he has a tremendous amount of energy. The The kid blows light bulbs. The family would be sitting at the dining room table when suddenly a light bulb in the chandelier would blow out. Eventually, the whole family came to believe that Nathan was bursting the light bulbs with his energy. We placed like six light bulbs in the chandelier, you know, and it's like all within a month, month and a half. He blew a light bulb at school. He said, I all but got a bill in the mail. 
A couple of years ago, when Nathan was 13, he started going to psychic development classes and became a certified energy healer. Then he decided to start a business. He had business cards made and even designed his own webpage. One day he hopes to have his own office. But for now, he does a lot of work from home. It's going to be one of those things where you want to back away. Nathan is very professional as he reads my tarot cards. But his younger sister, Tara, makes faces and rolls her eyes in the background. She calls him a moron and a boob. But he doesn't let it get to him. He just scolds her and keeps going. Tara, if you do not stop, you're going to have to go away from the table. Okay, so he allegedly blows up light bulbs with his energy. Hello? But in a lot of ways, Nathan's just like any other teenager. He spends hours on the phone, wears Abercrombie and Fitch sweatshirts, gels his hair. And before he leaves the house, he sprays himself down with something called Axe, which is like a nuclear bomb of teenage boy. But so far, his teenage life and his psychic life don't really mix. I sort of keep hush at school because that's it. The supernatural is not really accepted just because they're, I guess, because they're scared of it in a way. I think that's part of the reason why people don't indulge in it. Welcome. You've got mail. Unlike his classmates, when Nathan gets home from school, he gives psychic advice over the Internet. I've had some clients that have asked me just these real hard questions about maybe possibly an affair that has gone on. And I may have been right, I may not have, I have not heard back on that. It's a responsibility that I've been given that I have to take care of. The reason why I want to use my abilities is to help other people. I've always wanted to help other people. You help people out by guiding them and bring them spiritual guidance into their life. Because without a spiritual life, you're lost. If you're lost, I guess there's not much good of that. Today, Nathan and I are in Silo 7, a metaphysical store in Bangor, Maine. If Nathan was lost before he had a spiritual life, this would be the place where he started finding himself. Nathan would come in here and ask question after question after question. So after a while, I set up a policy. You get seven questions. After that, I won't answer a thing. I didn't know that. I gave him unlimited questions. Oh, not me. He's a very mature teenager in some ways. He thinks on the larger scale of global type things and issues. Like an and old then soul. like an old soul. And then there's other times when he's a pain in the butt. Teenager. Yep. <laughs> Did we summarize you up pretty good, pal? I'll give you a beat. <laughs> Armed with twenty bucks that he talked out of his grandma, Nathan is browsing the store looking at books and crystals. Finally, he decides on a CD of the chanting Gregorian monks. It's evening time at Nathan's house. He and his sister Tara and her friend are sitting at the kitchen table playing video games under the aforementioned chandelier. I tell him I want to see him burst a light bulb with his energy. My grandmother's going to kill me for this. Watch the chandelier, though, because it may start spinning. We all look up at the chandelier as Nathan sits with his eyes closed, breathing in and out slowly, his palms facing up. If you ask Nathan, the teenage psychic, what the future holds for him, he's got a lot of different visions. 
among them getting an office for his psychic work, going to college, maybe becoming a doctor. But for now, he's got other worries, like finding his missing Nintendo, making light bulbs burst with his mind, and just being a teenage kid. Is the shade in the lamp moving, or is it just me? Just you. Nothing's happening. Can we just go back to what we were doing? No light bulbs burst in the chandelier, and Tara and her friend go back to their video games. Nathan tells me he can't really make things blow up on purpose yet. It's like a power that he has, but hasn't learned to harness. And so it is for a 15-year-old psychic. A 15-year-old anybody, really. Exploding with potential. Nobody wanna see us together. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you missed part of the show, or if you'd like to hear it again, the show is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, we would love it if you would email us. The address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.